very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and we're welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, which I guarantee you will never hear on the mainstream media, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. And if you want to declassify the secrets to health and longevity, to unlock your full potential, go to sanitasradio.com and subscribe to. And if you want to get in touch with me, you want to be a guest on this radio program, just go to veritasradio.com and click on the contact link. I'd love to hear from you. Is the history we know about Christopher Columbus a fraud committed against historians and history? According to tonight's guest, most of Columbus' history as we know it is false. Columbus was never called Columbus, but Colon. The history books are full of invention by historians who guess as to what the truth was. The history has been supported by documents that turned out to be false. How can an Italian peasant weaver learned Latin, Spanish, Greek, mathematics, cartography, astronomy, and all of a sudden married to nobility prior to his journey to the Indies, and even become a noble admiral, governor, and viceroy of the New World? This sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? And it probably is. Was Columbus a secret agent for the King of Portugal and the son of a Polish king living in exile in Madeira and hid his royal roots to protect his father? And to set the record straight, tonight's special guest is Manuel Rosa, an award-winning Luso-American investigative historian born on the Azorian island of Pico, an expert on the life of Cristóbal Colón, better known in the USA as Christopher Columbus. Isarosa is author of O Misterio Colombo Gevelato, The Columbus Mystery Revealed, and Colón, La Historia Nunca Contada, Columbus, The Untold Story. Isarosa advised UNESCO to reject Barry Clifford's finding of the Santa Maria in 2014 and has been featured in NPR and BBC and currently lives in North Carolina. His webpage can be found at www.1492.us.com, which is also linked at ours. And Columbus, The Untold Story is currently seeking U.S. publication. And directly from North Carolina, USA, I would like to welcome Manuel Rosa. Hello, Mr. Rosa, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Great, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Emmanuel, before we begin, let me just tell you what prompted me to bring you on. Because a lot of people may be thinking, Mel, why are you trying to rediscover America and Columbus after 500 years? Well, back in 1997, when I moved to Tucson, Arizona, I was invited to a social gathering. And among the people, there was a female history professor from the University of Arizona. And she got me on the side. I guess she noticed I was very inquisitive. And she said, did you know that Christopher Columbus was not a wool weaver from Genoa, Italy, whose name was Cristoforo Colombo? And she said he was a Sephardic Jew from Catalonia. But because 1492 was during the Spanish Inquisition, he had to hide his true identity from the public in order to get uh, funding from the kings of Spain and also not to be persecuted. I asked the professor why this information did not make it to academia and the public, and she said, because it's not allowed. That was my interaction with her. Fast forward almost 20 years later, and I found you. 
First, how accurate or not was this professor about Don Cristobal Colón, birthplace, and, and, and why are so many academics and intellectuals wrong? And do you think you have found the truth about Colón? Well, let's start from uh, the, the last part of the question first. Yes, I think I have found the truth about Cristobal Colón. I uh, have 25 years, next year is going to be 25 years that I've been investigating the life of uh, Cristobal Colón, wrongly named Christopher Columbus in the U.S., in the in English-speaking uh, world. And I think that finally, after 25 years, I have discovered his secret identity. Now, as your uh, professor was trying to tell you uh, that he was a of Jewish origins, um, there is no basis in any of the documentation that I found to support that. As a matter of fact, there is contrary evidence to support that he was uh, um, Jewish. Um, and it, the whole idea that he was Jewish came from uh, Simon Weisenthal's book, um, Sales of Hope, which he published based on uh, some scribbles that he found in, in some letters from, from uh, Christopher Colon to his son, in which he saw these little characters on the top left corner, and he thought then, uh, that they were uh, Jewish handwriting uh, saying, uh, you know, uh, God bless you. And that little scribble on a few of, of Columbus's letters, uh, I'm going to call him Columbus, even though his name is Colon. There's no evidence that Cristobal Colon was uh, Jewish, and that this uh, myth started was started by Simon Weisenthal in his book, Sales of Hope, where he had seen some scribbles on uh, some of uh, Cristobal Colon's letters, and he thought that those uh, scribbles on the top left corner of the letters were a Jewish blessing uh, to, to his son. He wrongly um, said that the, that it w those, sorry, he wrongly claimed that those scribbles were only in Cologne's letters to his son Diego. In fact, there are letters from the Queen to Cristobal Cologne that have the same scribbles on the top left corner. And so I think that those scribbles were put there later on by some archivist who was just making little notes in the top left corner of the of the letters. And that has nothing to do with uh, Jewish uh, characters or blessings. It's interesting and, how somebody with Jewish descent perpetuates the notion that Columbus was Jewish. <laughs> well, it's interesting, yes. There's a lot of misinformation, invention. I mean, it's just amazing. It took me 10 years just to get to weed through the mess of misinformation and get to a point where I could say, okay, the whole history of Cristobal Colon that we have been thought is baseless. It's not based on any documentation. It's based on hearsay, on invention, and it's completely contrary to what really went on and what the documents show. And so when Weisenthal saw those scribbles, you know, maybe they, they look like Jewish characters. I don't know. But he did not investigate to see if maybe any other letters had those scribbles on them. And so if his theory is that uh, Cristobal Colon was secretly saying, God bless you, my son, in, um, in Hebrew, uh, in, in his letters, then the queen is saying the same thing in her letters to Cristobal Colon because the, the scribbles are in the queen's letters as well. So... When you only have part of the information, you are bound to go in the wrong direction. Yeah, half a truth is still a lie. And, you know, interesting that Wiesenthal, uh, this is a very plausible story. I'm not sure if he was the one who said that because in 1492, for example, Kingdom of Aragon, uh, it was a time of the Inquisition, Columbus had to hide. And by the way, I keep repeating Columbus, even though that's not the correct name, but for, for the listeners who can get what I'm saying, I can say Colón too. But uh, during the time, it was the time of the Inquisition. So it's a very plausible an interesting story for somebody to hide the origins in order to, let's say, infiltrate the, the uh, monarchy to get the funding necessary to go to the West Indies. Well, in theory, that sounds plausible. But factually, it's completely against the facts. So what, what happens? Let's look at the things logically. Um, the, the, the Jews were not being persecuted. The Inquisition actually did not come into Spain until after 1492, the, uh, you know, in full force. The Jews themselves were not being persecuted until 1492 when, when they, um, uh, just before uh, April or so, 
when they passed the law that all the Jews had to leave Spain. This is after they conquered the kingdom of Granada from the Muslims, and suddenly they wanted a clean Christian kingdom of Spain, either convert or leave. So that was passed in 1492. Now think about it. Cristóbal Colón moved to Spain at the end of 1484, okay? So he would have had the premonition in 1484 when he changed his identity to Cristóbal Colón that the Jews were going to be expelled in 1492, and therefore he needed to protect against that uh, future uh, um, event. That's completely, you know, uh, against logic. And uh, actually, it's contrary to the facts. Cristóbal Colón was a, uh, a Christian. I will not say he was a Catholic, but he was a Christian. He, uh, he uh, talked bad about Jews and about conversos in his letters. He uh, always um, praised the Christian uh, and, and the, um, the Christian ideal and the um, uh, Holy Trinity. And, um, you know, he um, wrote his own book of prophecies that is based on, on uh, the, the uh, Christian, um, uh, the, the book of um, John, the book of the Apocalypse. And so he left his own book of prophecies that are based on Christianity. Now, that this notion that is continued to be perpetuated everywhere, the Italian peasant, wool weaver, generation after generation, all of a sudden learns Latin, Spanish, Greek, mathematics, cartography, astronomy, Mary's nobility in Portugal becomes, we know, of course, that he became a, a noble admiral, governor, viceroy of the new world, but the preceding aspects, how, how I'm surprised that people don't question how somebody who's supposedly a peasant can have so many attributes. Well, th this is really where the story began to, uh, to, to become interesting for me. In uh, 1991, every, everybody was creating books about Christ, uh, Cristobal Colón uh, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the discovery in the world. Yep. And I worked on the translation of a book from Portuguese into English. And in that book, I found out that Cristobal Colón had married a Portuguese uh, noble lady, Filipe Muniz, who is the daughter of the captain of the island of Porto Santo in Madeira. And uh, suddenly it struck me uh, as, as odd. It struck me odd for a couple of reasons. One that in Portugal, nobody really talks about this, uh, this uh, Cristobal Colón marrying this lady. Yeah, they, they sweep it under the, the rug. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, and so I found it interesting being in Portuguese that no one had ever taught me uh, that the most famous navigator in the world was married to a noble lady in Portugal. Uh, but secondly, is that I knew the guy from Italy was a peasant weaver. And I knew that something was wrong in this story. I either knew it was either that the guy who discovered America did not marry this lady, or the guy who married this lady is not the guy from Italy. And this is how I started my investigation, initially just for my own curiosity. And uh, as I read uh, more and more books and, and in different languages, you know, in Portuguese, Spanish, French, Catalan, English, um, I always um, got different stories from different authors. and. Whenever I would trace the sources, the, the books back to their sources that they were, were basing themselves on, either they had misquoted the sources or the sources themselves were wrong. And so I, after, like I said, after 10 years of going over all the documents back and forth and back and forth and realizing that the story was not correct, I then spent the next five years just getting to a point where I could say, okay, this is what the documentation shows. And the guy who discovered America was a high noble in Portugal in 1479 when he married this lady, Filipe Muniz, which was a very, uh, so noble that the king had to authorize her marriage. And so that fact alone negates the whole history that has been written from 1504 until today about the peasant weaver. Why did he have to go to Spain to request funding in order to, to, for his journey of discovery, why, why couldn't he go to his own kingdom in Portugal to do it? Well, this is really, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's two conspiracies playing side by side here. We have one conspiracy, which is the conspiracy to hide Cristobal Colón's true identity. And that conspiracy was, um, was involved, had involvement of the Portuguese court, the Spanish court, the Cologne family and, you know, their relatives and friends. 
So basically, we have a person who is very important uh, in the social, um, in, the, in his society, who required that his identity be hidden, and the courts helped him in hiding his identity. The second part of this is that when he went to Spain to, to peddle his uh, idea to sail across the Atlantic to India, he was actually working as a secret agent for the King of Portugal. And so uh, there, w- there was no need for him to present this to the King of Portugal because the King of Portugal knew very well what was across the Atlantic. The Atlantic had been navigated by the, by the Portuguese uh, sailors for a long time. Brazil was already discovered before 1492. And Columbus and Cristobal oh, Colón. This this is new to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's lots of things that are, are are there, and if people would just pay attention to what they're reading, they would find these facts. And so Cristobal Colón, in his in his third voyage, he wrote that I'm going to sail southwest because I want to know what was the King of Portugal talking about that there is a big continent. Uh, in that direction. And because this continent is there, he had the disagreement with the kings of Spain over where to divide the world. Okay? So this is Cologne's statement. That's in his uh, uh, information from his third voyage. So now we have to think to ourselves, well, Cristobal Colón left in 1492 to discover the new world. He returned in 14, March 1493 to Portugal. He didn't go to Spain. He went to Portugal. And then he tells us that the king of Portugal said, hey, there is a continent over there, and and that belongs to us, to Portugal, and I will make Spain sign a treaty, leaving that part of the continent on the Portuguese side. So that is very clear to me that what the king of Portugal knew, the secret information he had, is that Brazil was already discovered. I always wondered that. Always wondered that. Why such a small country as Portugal can have dominion of all that eastern part of South America? Well, Portugal controlled, uh, controlled a lot of their discoveries by secrecy. So, you know, even though they had discovered Brazil long before 1492, as a matter of fact, there is a letter uh, in the Ar- Portuguese archives from 1473 that orders um, um, John uh, Cortreal to go again and find those islands west of the islands of Cape Verde. Well, the islands across from the islands of Cape Verde are the Caribbean islands. And to go find them again, which means this would be probably the second or third voyage to go there. And the, the, what we need to understand is that Cologne's voyage was not a voyage of discovery. It was a voyage of cover-up, and it was a voyage made purely for political reasons to aid Portugal in protecting the real India for itself. And so... He was not going to anywhere that was not discovered. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew who he was going to meet there. He knew pretty much how long it was going to take him to to get there. And he knew what route to return by uh, to get safely back to Europe. And all this information is kept secret in Portugal because Portugal is a very tiny kingdom. It's about the size of Massachusetts. It had one million inhabitants in in 1500. So you can imagine that uh, uh, such a small kingdom could never go out and control anything that they discovered out there. You know, they had to control it by secrecy. And so the king of Portugal had passed a law that um, a penalty of death law for anyone that discussed secrets of navigation with foreigners. What this means is that they knew that the only way to protect what they discovered was by keeping secrecy. And the king passed the law ensuring that his uh, subjects would not be blabbering to anybody else about the things they found. And the penalty was dead. And so you can understand that this was a life and death struggle for a small kingdom that had very few resources, but had a lot of knowledge, scientific knowledge, and a lot of uh, acquired knowledge through investigating the Atlantic Ocean for probably 200 200 years. Very, very interesting, because what we're told in this part of the world is that Brazil was discover or colonize in, in the early part of the 16th century, in 1500, I believe. So 25, 30, 40 years after what we've been told. But what you're saying makes so much sense because such a small kingdom cannot defend all that. And if you want to keep that area secluded, if you will, 
keep Columbus going to the Caribbean, going to Cuba, going to Hispaniola, going to Borinquen, and so on, and then keep that other part secret until later. Is that exactly. what happened? Exactly. But you have to, you know, uh, Gustavo Colon was working for the, the King of Portugal. He was lying, conti- continuously lying to the Spanish. And those lies have been accepted as what he believed. In other words, when he says, I discovered India and I come from India, and even as late as 1505, when he's still claiming that, that the, the Spanish are in India, historians have said, well, the guy was delusional. He, he believed he was in India until he died, and that he continuously um, could not tell that he was not in India. In fact, there was a letter that America's Vespucci carried to, to Cologne's son, and here's another thing that people do not know. Vespucci was employed by, by uh, Cristobal Colon already in 1495. Vespucci was a secret agent of Cristobal Colon as well. And so Vespucci is working for Cristobal Colon. And in 1505, Cristobal Colon sent Vespucci with a letter to his son. And he said, uh, America Vespucci, the, the bearer of this letter, is going to the court. He's being called there by the, um, by the king to discuss matters of navigation. He's going to, he's, he goes as one of Mayan. And he will do whatever he can to benefit me. Their highnesses must be convinced that their ships are in the best of India. And all must be done secretly so nobody suspects Vespucci. You see? And the historians who look at this letter where Colón is saying that the Spanish ships are in India, uh, you know, they um, wrongly believe that Cologne accepts or believes that his ships are in India when it's actually the contrary. He is making people believe that he believes the ships are in India. And this is all because he's, part of, he's, a, he's a secret agent working for somebody else. So he's a double agent, in, right? Yes. Now, why is America, and this is probably not part of your research, but I'm sure you, you, you might shed some light, why is America... Called, not called Colombia, if supposedly Columbus is the one with the credit of coming here first. Or, or not called Colonia, let's put it that way. Yeah, right. Um, you know, there's, there's, um, there's lots of, of confusion in how the name came about. But, you know, America Vespucci, either he um, um, took, you know, took it on, upon himself to publicize this more than, than Cristobal Colón did, because Colón was, was trying to do nothing more than help Portugal. Or Vespucci uh, at that point maybe was trying to get some fame for himself. But um, the other part is that because Cristobal Colon was not his real name, you know, he was not uh, probably too concerned about going down in history uh, as as having things named after the wrong name. You know, uh, his his main concern was uh, recovering uh, Jerusalem from uh, you know for Christianity and spreading Christianity uh, in a new world, stemming the, um, the, the spread of Islam, and to protect his real identity and his father's real identity. According to uh, researchers, uh, the Vikings, the Chinese, even Egyptians had visited this side of the world. Even there are some native tribes uh, whose elders have in their possession artifacts given to them thousands of years ago by people in that area of the world. What do you say about that? Well, I don't doubt that the, that the Chinese could have come across from the from the uh, Pacific Ocean. That, for for the Western history, is irrelevant. You know, it doesn't really mean anything to the Europeans that that Native Americans had had already colonized the uh, the New Continent, or that uh, you know Indonesians or or uh, the Chinese had come across the Pacific to to the New World, because the news never got to Europe, so it really didn't matter what was going on. Uh, to the Europeans, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. what, what was going on on the other side of the of the uh, American continent. However, you know, the Vikings, they just found in Stony Point, uh, west of, uh, north of Manhattan, they just found a, a Viking bureau ground from the 9th century. I heard that recently, right. a few days ago. Exactly. It was in April, I think, they discovered it. And so, you know, what we do not know about our human history is immense compared to the little bits that we know. And, and there's always been... Um, hearsay or, or, you know, uh, rumors that uh, the continent, had, that the land was here. And I don't doubt that the Egyptians and the Phoenicians you may have come across. You know, you got to keep in mind that you know, we've been sailing, humans have been sailing for thousands and thousands of years. 
And if you're sailing a boat in the Atlantic, uh, you know, uh, off of the coast of Africa or, or out from uh, the Mediterranean into the Atlantic and suddenly you catch some bad wind, uh, you get lost in the sea and who knows, you could be blown into the Americas and, and maybe even find a way to make your way back. But that is, um, the fact that Cristobal Colon did not discover the new world is, is pretty evident. Now, the fact that he took, uh, that he took, um, um, that he claimed it, you know, is, is uh, very important because it was the King of Portugal who allowed him to claim that fame, you know. The King of Portugal made a decision to make this continent known to Europe because it would help Portugal protect a more important uh, territory that Portugal wanted, and that was the coast of Africa, you know, the African trade and the spice trade. And so the King of Portugal made the decision to trade off a continent that was huge and that was not um, very good for trade. You know, when the ships would, would arrive to the coast of America, there were no cities where you could stop and trade or refurbish your, you know, food supplies and all those things like you did when you went to uh, civilized, um, civilized in the sense of industrious, industrially civilized places where you could stop in a port. You know, you had the, you had the safe ports to to anchor in. You had trade you could do. And when you sailed across the Atlantic and you you saw nothing but trees and no nobody really that you could stop in and trade for something. Uh, the natives would run inland when they saw people coming. Uh, there was, uh, he decided that it was more important to, to give up this new world and protect the, the India and, and the African trade for himself. And that's exactly what he did. That was Cologne's real mission in sailing across the Atlantic. It was not to discover the new world. It was to convince the Spanish that they had reached the territories of India. And there was a very important reason why, why that needed to happen at that time. So that was the ulterior motive, but I just can't imagine if if he had gone th- through the Portuguese without having to go to the kingdom of, of Spain to do this, wouldn't that have elevated Portugal to a, a world power with all the resources that they would have found? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Columbus really the precursor, the one, the one who established the the slavery trade in order to effect, if you will, the conquest? Well, there's some misconceptions about that as well. So uh, Cristóbal Colón, well, let's back up a little bit. Portugal did not, uh, Portugal knew the New World was here. Portugal could not control the New World. It was pretty immense. Portugal was really involved in a mission of setting up trading posts around the, around the, the world, not conquering uh, places mm-hmm. around the world. So basically, they would go to Africa. They would set up a, a treaty with a local uh, chief where they say, okay, allow us to build a, a fort here, a trading post. We will protect your people. We'll protect you against your enemies. And we will both benefit from this trade uh, agreement. Uh, and so the Americas, were, there was nothing here for Portugal that, at that point. And so they knew that in India is where all the, all the spice trade was. They knew that if they got there, that they could suddenly... Uh, become very rich, which they indeed they did in the in the 1500s. Portugal became the uh, Lisbon and Portugal became the richest uh, country in the world for you know 50 years or so, and that whole plan was put in place, um, and, and was they were able to do that because of Columbus' secret mission of making the New World known to Spain, and and only to Spain, you know, and sailing only for Spain. There's another reason for that as well, and so. If we put things in perspective, uh, Cristobal Colon could not go to the King of Portugal and say, hey, give me some ships, I'm going to sail across the Atlantic and I'll give you India. When the very King of Portugal knew what was across the Atlantic, you know, that would never make any sense. That whole idea that, that Colon made the proposition to the King of Portugal is part of this, is a secret mission, is part of the, the conspiracy to trick Spain. Uh, when he went to Spain, he said that he had proposed this to the King of Portugal and he was turned down. And then he went to Spain to propose this to the King of Spain, to the, the court of Spain. So you have to uh, look at things logically. You're Cristobal Colon. You make your proposal to the King of Portugal. He says, no, um, your idea is stupid. Go away. So, okay. I'm going to go to Spain and try that kingdom. He goes to Spain. They say, no, your idea is stupid. Go away. What would be the next step? The next step would be to try a different kingdom, right? Right. No, he stayed in Spain. He stayed in Spain from 1484 until 1492 until he got a yes. 
He was continuously being rejected and he was continuously pushing it onto Spain because that was his mission. He did not, he did not want anybody else to sponsor the mission because Spain was Portugal's only enemy in Europe. It, Portugal had no other enemy in Europe. They had Spain as their only enemy and everybody else was friends of Portugal. You know, the oldest treaty in the world is signed between Portugal and, uh, and England at around 1265, I believe, a free trade agreement. That's, you know, it's still in effect, although not, you know, it's never been <laughs> canceled, let's put it that way. But, you know, and, and uh, with Denmark and, and the, the Netherlands and, and those other kingdoms and with Italy, Portugal had friendly relations with France. They had an agreement with France. The only kingdom that Portugal ever had any wars with, aside from the, the Arabs, you know, the, Morocco or Northern Africa, was Spain. And the reason for that is that when Portugal became independent in the, in the 1139, uh, they, took, they became independent from Spain, from Castile. And Castile always saw Portugal as belonging to them. And, they, and for four or 500 years, they kept trying to take Portugal back. Matter of fact, in 1580, when the king of Portugal died young without leaving an heir to the throne, Spain took over the kingdom of Portugal from 1580 until 1640. And so, um, you know, there, was, there were constant battles for the independence of Portugal fought against Spain because Spain refused to let it go. And so um, when, you, when you look at the political atmosphere, you understand that Portugal needed to get Spain off its back, you know? And the, re the way they did it was to give them this new world that, 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 and convince them it was India. Well, I think uh, they learned their lesson, and that's why now it's in their constitution that provinces like uh, Catalonia cannot really go independent or Galicia or, or the Basque country, right? Right. So, you know, uh, when we, when we go back to, um, when we go back to the begin back to the beginning of, of the, the idea of Portugal, uh, let's keep in mind that Portugal was created by the Temple Knights. So lots of people don't know this, you know, that even Portuguese, even Portuguese historians do not know this because they somehow, uh, don't care to, to investigate our, um, the Portuguese, beginning, but the kingdom of Portugal was, the, the county of Portugal was given to a French knight uh, called uh, Henry of Burgundy, who came to help the, uh, the Castilians fight, the, uh, fight off the Muslim invaders who had uh, invaded uh, Iberia. And that knight was given in, uh, in marriage to uh, the, king's, uh, the king's daughter. So Henry of Burgundy was given the county of Portugal in, in northern Portugal today. And he was given uh, the he was married to the king's daughter. That count from from Burgundy happens to be um, a cousin of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, who's the guy who actually uh, uh, sanctioned the the Templar Knights for the uh, for the Vatican. Uh, not only was Saint Bernard of Clairvaux the guy uh, Clairvaux the guy who who created the rule of the the rules for the Templar order uh, the, the order of the Templar Knights, but two of his uncles were original Templar Knights. One Portuguese guy was an original Templar knight, and they're all related to this guy who came fight in, uh, who became the count, the count of the king, the, of the county of Portugal in the 1100s. His son, who went on to become the first king of Portugal, Afonso Henriques, uh, was a Templar knight, and his son had already granted land. His, his um, the Templar knights had already been granted lands in Portugal in 1111. At 17 years before the Temple Knights were an organization, uh, you know, uh, known to be an organization. So 1111, the first land is granted to the Temple Knights in Portugal. The first king of Portugal is a Temple Knight. 1128, uh, 1126, I believe it was, another uh, piece of land is granted to the Temple Knights. The Temple Knights only became uh, a known organization in 1128. So the whole, this was a family Uh, affair, the Temple Knights, with ideals that were um, uh, that were instilled in them from from a long time ago of freedom and equality and and um, you know fraternity, and those ideals you know went on to to create what is America today. You know, America was created by the, by the uh, Freemasons, which are kind right. of uh, outcrop of the Temple Knights, with the ideals that Portugal was putting was putting in place in the 1100s. 
And Portugal was an anti-Vatican state because they were a Templar state. And the first king of Portugal appointed his own bishops in Portugal, and the Pope did not like that and sent an envoy to to the king to go, uh, you know, excommunicate him or to put him in line, let's put it this way. And the king of Portugal said before this, this bishop came over to talk with him, he basically said, I want to see what envoy from the Pope comes to my kingdom and extends his hand for me to kiss it that I do not cut it off at the album, <laughs> elbow. Because we also have Bibles here, and we do not need the Vatican to tell us about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for the next 400 years, Portugal had an adversary uh, relationship with the Vatican. You know, Portugal, um, all, all its kings were excommunicated. One king was even replaced by his brother by the Vatican. That king went on to become anti-Vatican, was also excommunicated. And we have this sort of, of um, anti-Vatican ideal in Portugal, which if we, if we backtrack even a little bit more, we can understand. It's rooted in the coming, uh, it's rooted in the third age of mankind. So basically, Joaquin de Fiora, which you might have heard of, Joaquin de Fiora was uh, an abbot from Calabria, Calabria, Italy. And he basically uh, came up with the idea that there's three ages to mankind, to humanity. Is the age of the Father, age of the Son, and the age of the Holy Spirit. The age of the Father is prior to Jesus. The age of the Son is, you know, after Jesus. In the age of the Holy Spirit, we are still waiting to arrive. Basically, it's when man, it's when humanity can talk to God directly and does not need an intermediary. Do not need a rabbi, an uh, oman. You don't. You do not need a. Um, an iman, a rabbi, you don't need a, a priest, a priest, a pope, you don't need anybody to talk to the spirit. And this, as you can see, is a threat to all organized religion. Now, I know about this because uh, even though the Vatican tried to stamp out the cult of the Holy Spirit, which is what the, the, the Templars uh, began spreading in Portugal, um, in, the, in the Azores where I come from, it was not stamped out. You see, the Azores are small little islands in the middle of nowhere, and it didn't really uh, affect much of the political uh, and religious atmosphere going on in Europe. But in Portugal, the cult of the Holy Spirit was kept alive, you know, and it's still alive today. And if you if you uh, look into any community of Portuguese from the Azores who have gone to Brazil, Australia, Bermuda, Hawaii, you know, U.S., California, east, east coast of, Mass- of, of the United States, anywhere there are Portuguese descendants from the Azores, they all practice the cult of the Holy Spirit. And so this is um, this is what the Temple Knights and what Cristobal Colon wanted to implement in the whole world, a, a world free of organized religion where every human being can talk with the Spirit on its own terms. And Cristobal Colon says this in his own letters. He says that the, the abbot of Calabria spoke about this coming. You know, he said in his own letters that the Holy Spirit talks to everyone, peasants, nobles, even to the animals. And it doesn't matter if you are Jewish, Muslim, Christian, that the Holy Spirit talks to everyone. And so this is the, the ideal that was beginning to be put together in Portugal in the 1100s when Portugal became an independent kingdom, a Temple Knight, uh, created by the Temple Knights. And with its first king as a temple, a member of the Temple Order. I remember spending some time in, in Granada, southern Spain, and I was always amazed at the fact that you had all religions coexisting. You know, you had the, the Catholics and the churches, the synagogues, and, uh, you know, and the Muslims too, right next to each other. How was the relationship, this is just a quick parenthesis, how was the relationship between Portugal and Spanish by the Moors in southern Spain at the time. You mean, uh, how was uh, Portugal, did it, Portugal have a relationship with Granada? The right. With, Granada? Yes, correct. No, no. Okay. Portugal was uh, was a, a fierce defendant of, of um, you know, a freer, a freer um, humanity, let's put it that way. And so Portugal is actually, uh, was involved in helping uh, the Spanish take over the Kingdom of Granada, expel the Muslims from there, um, the, there was really no, there was not really a big 
uh, a great harmony between the religions, as you might, as, as people may think there was. You know, Portugal had what they call Judarias and, and um, Murarias, which are um, uh, Jewish ghettos and, and Muslim ghettos. Uh, there were rules for those people. They did not force them to convert. But at the same time, you know, at, at sundown, they had to be inside their, you know, their their um, quarters and things like that. Uh, sometimes they were forced to wear, you know, a, a, sign, a sign on their clothes or to identify who they were so they wouldn't be mingling with the, um, the Christians and trying to marry them, that kind of stuff, unknowingly. Uh, so, um, you know, it was not as harmonious as it uh, sometimes people uh, tend to make it like uh, they say, well, you know, the Muslims invaded Iberia and they allowed, uh, you know, Christians to live peacefully and all those things. Well, yes, but they had to pay taxes and all kinds of other things that the Muslims were not subject to. So uh, Portugal had a, a, another reason to get into the Indian Ocean, and that reason was to stem the spread of Islam. You know, uh, when Prince Henry, I started to tell you about the, Port the Temple Knights being created by uh, the Portugal being created by the Temple Knights, being a Temple Knight uh, ideal of what the rest of the world would, would end up looking like. Uh, you know, in 1307, when the temples were uh, outlawed and arrested, they were, um, you know, the, the Pope gave orders uh, to all, all the kings that had temple, uh, temples in their kingdom to arrest them and confiscate their goods. Well, the, in Portugal, the king refused to arrest them. The king did not confiscate their goods. The king refused to arrest the Temple Knights. And um, the king instead converted the Temple Knights into the Portuguese order of, the, of Christ, which went on to, to exist for another four or 500 years, um, you know, as the Temple Knights. So basically the Temple Knights became, from a, instead of being an international organization, became a, a national Portuguese organization known as the Order of Christ. Now, a lot of people have heard of Prince Henry the Navigator, but what I do not know is that Henry the Navigator was the Templar master of the Order of Christ from 1420 until 1460 when he died. So Henry the Navigator is the guy who really made the push to, for Atlantic discoveries. He really made that his life's goal to, to push um, his sailors you know, south along Africa and west and to try to figure out what's out there and to try to find the end of Africa so that the Portuguese could put a Templar fleet in the Indian Ocean and stem the spread of Islam. And that was part of the mission of, uh, of uh, Portugal, not just to reach the spice trade, take that spice trade away from the Muslims, but also to stem Islam from spreading, uh, which you know would have been detrimental to all um, um, other religions. And so, you know, the Christians were not any, any um, uh, let's put it, the Christians weren't saints either, let's put it that way. Um, but the idea of, of um, stemming the spread of Islam on the, on the Pacific was actually started, uh, was actually written about in around 1321 already, you know, and, uh, and Prince Henry Navigator, who was the Temple Knight master, actually began implementing that, that plan. And if the Portuguese ships had not made it into the Indian Ocean, you know, in 1498, when Vasco da Gama got there and then established these Portuguese um, trading posts and helped uh, other natives um, fight the Arab invasion, we probably would have a world that would be uh, much different than it is today. Very interesting, because I always wonder why so vicious, why coming to the New World and converting everybody, everybody, convert or die, and it makes sense. And was it another reason why Columbus headed west? Because, of course, we had the Silk Road going all the way to India. Were there wars there, and this is why Columbus wanted to find an alternate route to head to India? No, that's, not, that's, a, that's a misinterpretation. Cristobal Colón never wanted to find an alternate route to India. Cristobal Colón wanted to take the Spanish to the New World and convince them that this was India. Cristóbal Colón was a secret agent for the King of Portugal on a mission to protect the real India for the Kingdom of Portugal. And he succeeded, he succeeded so well in his mission that for 500 years, people have believed that Cristóbal Colón wanted to reach India and actually had believed that the, the Americas were India. You see how I'm repeating what I've been trained to say. It's very difficult to 
to uh, <laughs> drop the skin that's been attached to my brain for so many decades. So I'm glad that you're retraining or entraining me uh, in, in, in what really happened. Now, do you think Queen Isabella was in into all of this conspiracy? Did she know? No. She did not know. She suspected in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, she suspected that Cristobal Colon was up to something. Uh, a matter of fact, they, when he presented this plan to the Spanish court, one of the, one of the times that, that he presented this to the Spanish court, they basically told him, this is a trick. You know, you're trying to trick us. Go away. And this, and we know this because his, Colon's brother wrote, Bartholomew Colon wrote that you know, I was with my brother trying to trying to uh, present this uh, enterprise to your to your highnesses, and everyone that we told this uh, of this enterprise called it a trick. And in fact, it was a trick. Uh, but you know, she suspected it. But at the same time, Cristobal Colon was a very important person in his time. You know, he was he was equal in in social stature as Queen Isabel was. And the reason that he was equal is because before he set up on the first voyage, he made a contract with Queen Isabel that was a contract between equals called the Capitulations of Santa Fe. This contract says, I will sail across the Atlantic. I will give you such and such. You will make me admiral and viceroy and governor. I will, you know, um, um, I will put a, a certain percentage into every fleet that goes. I will get a certain percentage out, you know. And so this agreement between equals, you know, you can imagine anybody, anybody not being a prince trying to convince, you know, entering into agreement with a prince where they're demanding of this prince to give them, you know, in other words, they're making demands, not just, you know, give me the, give me the resources to make this voyage, but also reward me for making the voyage and reward, reward me so high that my rewards will outweigh your rewards. This is what happened. Cristobal Colon's contract gave him, in the end, much more monetary benefit than the court of Spain would receive. So that 18% that, that's been told in history, that that's what he was supposed to, his portion, is that not true? Well, I don't have a contract in front of me, but it amounts to, I don't think it amounts to 18%. I think it amounts to, he gets, uh, I think he got 10% of every fleet, of, of everything that was made from the new world, Okay. So whatever, whatever was earned in the new world, he would get 10%. He got his admiral, admiral salary. He got his governor's salary. He was then able to put, I think it was 8% into every, uh, any, any, um, any fleet that sailed. He had the option to put in 8% himself and collect 8% of the profit. So in the end, what he was getting from the new world was an enormous fortune that outweighed what the crown of Spain would get. The reason why I asked you if Queen Isabel was part of the cover-up is because I have a very hard time understanding how Colón, when he would write, he would uh, insert Portuguese words, he could not write in Italian. Therefore, if you're the queen or you know somebody in the kingdom would notice that, wait a second, there's somebody here who's lying to us and there may be an ulterior motive that we need to abort this mission, if you will. Well, that's, yeah. So I, in, in a little while ago, I said there were two conspiracies working side by side. We have a guy who assumed a new identity of Cristobal Colon. We don't yet know his real name. I believe I uncovered the code, and that's what I present in Columbus, the Untold Story. Uh, so we have a guy who, who assumed a new identity. So basically, we have a James Bond who assumed his name as 007. We have some guy in Portugal who assumed his name, his, his spy name, as Cristobal Colon. Now, when he goes to Spain under this new identity, people knew who he was. You know, Isabel always knew who Cristobal Colon was. So she is part of the conspiracy to hide his identity. She is not part of this conspiracy to, you know, to, to, um, that Colon was involved in, in making her believe that America was India. That's, that's Portugal's conspiracy against Spain. Oh, wow. So, the blood thickens. Right. So what we have is... Uh, so. You know, um, this is very complicated, and you can understand why the history books are, are uh, as messy as they are. And also you can understand why it's very difficult to get at the, at the actual facts, because this was a spy mission 
that he was involved in, uh, you know, in the first and second voyage. And that spy mission was never supposed to be exposed. And so the secret agent that was Cristobal Colon did everything he could to stay in his spy role and to convince the world in Spain that he had reached India and that uh, India, uh, that Spain now had uh, territories in, in, the, uh, in the Indian continent. And so the other part is that in Portugal, this had to be all covered up, you know? You couldn't be, you couldn't let this out. And so books were, were written with false information, you know, chronic, the chronicles didn't, didn't have the correct information, they had misleading information. And the King of Portugal was, was expert at sending out misleading information. And I'll, I'll give you one example of the misleading information that went into putting this mission together. The oldest globe, the oldest man-made globe in the world is in Germany. It was made by Martin of Bohemia, of Bohemia, Martin behind. Martin Bohemia created this globe in, in, in um, Germany in 1492. Now, isn't that strange? He went to Germany to create a globe in 1492 that puts India on the other side of the Atlantic. Hmm. Okay. So when you read about this globe and you read about Martin of Bohemia, you, the historians say, this guy was so incompetent. You know, he called himself a geographer, but he was so incompetent that he created a globe putting India on the other side of the Atlantic. Well, that's a false globe. That's part of the secret mission that Cristobal Colón was, was involved in. And that globe was, was uh, support for Cristobal Colón's <laughs> trick against the Spanish that India was on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, how do, you, how, do you, how do I know this? Well, Martin of Beheim lived in Portugal since about 1484. He was made a knight of the order of Christ by King John II. In other words, Martin of Beheim was a Templar knight. Martin of Beheim married the daughter of the captain of the island, island of Fayal, which is five miles from the island I was born in. Every day when I, when I woke, woke up in, in Pico, I could see Fayal right across the waters and the, and the, and the village, the city of Orta, where Martin Behind lived for, you know, several years. And Martin Behind knew the distance between Fayal and Lisbon, but yet on his globe, he put Fayal, the, the Azores, on top of Canada. And you, have, <laughs> and you have to realize that either the guy knew nothing or he's making a false globe. And so what happens? Well, Martin To, to deceive, obviously. Exactly. That's the only reason that globe was made. That's the only reason that Martin Behind was sent from Portugal to Germany to make a globe that is a false globe. Because if he made the globe in Portugal, it would be suspect. But if he made it in another country, uh, it, you know, where without having the king of Portugal's hand behind it, you know, was suspected of, of the king of Portugal being the suspected leader of this false globe, it would be accepted as it was. And so we have many things that are working in conjunction that the mission could not fail. You see, Portugal could not let this mission fail. And the King of Portugal made ensure that everything Cristobal Colón needed to succeed in this mission to trick Spain, he was given. In Spain, Cristobal Colón had working with him, not just America's Vespucci and, uh, and uh, Ginotti Berardi, but he had the guy who convinced the Pizon brothers to join the first voyage, um, uh, Vasquez de la Frontera, I forget his first name now, Pedro Vasquez de la Frontera, okay? The guy who convinced the Pizon brothers to go on the first voyage, the captain of the Nina, the captain of the Pinta, was the same guy who was in Canada in 1452 and who discovered the islands of Flores and Corvo in the Azores for the King of Portugal. So we have a guy who's a, who's a knight of the King of Portugal in Seville, working to convince the Pizon brothers to join the first voyage with Cristobal Colón, who had already been to Canada and already knew the land was there. That's not the only secret agent that's working with Cristobal Colón in Spain. You know, he's got the guy, Giornotto Berardi, was Cristobal Colón's agent in Seville at the same time that he collected the King of Portugal's taxes in Seville. I'm just thinking, how shrewd, 
how clever the, the, the kingdom in, in Portugal uh, to be doing all of this and, and Spain with all the resources falling for all of it. You know, it's, it's, there's a couple of things that they, they didn't fall for all of it. You know, they, they, they doubted, they had their doubts. They were not stupid, you know, but at the same time, Cristobal Colon was convincingly was, was convincing enough that they believed that he had their best interests at heart until they finally realized that he didn't. And they arrested him in 1500. So I wanted to come back to, to the, the thing you said about the slave trade and all of that. So there's a lot of misconceptions around this whole history. Uh, people are up in arms about, uh, you know, uh, what Cristobal Colon did in the New World. And, uh, you know, we have to judge him by the time he was living in and by, you know, how things were, were done at that time. And it, whether or not we believe those things are right today. But there's a, a very big misconception that Cristobal Colon uh, enslaved Indians and, and uh, you know, started the slave trade. In fact, Cristobal Colon did um, during one war against the uh, 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 enemy tribe of the tribe that uh, the, of the, the tribe that Colon had allied himself with in uh, Española, which is today, uh, you know, uh, Dominican Republic right. in Haiti. Mm -hmm. He had allied himself with some certain natives. And during the war against those natives' enemies, he uh, captured about 400 uh, Native Americans, you know, natives, or we shouldn't really call them Indians. Uh, he captured some 400 natives, which he considered, you know, um, slaves of war, which was a practice for thousands of years and thousands of years in, in you know, in the civilized world uh, or the uncivilized world, as you may think of it. And so he captured what he thought were slaves of war, and he sent them to Spain in two ships. And the minute they landed in Spain, the queen said, no, all those natives over there are our subjects, and they will not be made slaves. So she tried to send them all back. Obviously, some, some have died in the voyage going and coming. But that was the only slave, um, uh, let's say, uh, enterprise or you know, slave um, event that we can say Cristobal Colón was involved in. So from then on, what he tried to do, or not from then on, but ever since he landed in the world, what he tried to do was subjugate and rule them because this was his kingdom, you know. Cristobal Colón was viceroy of this whole world, this whole new world. And so he did not want to enslave those people. He wanted to control, you know, he wanted to have them work for him. Let's put it that way, you know. Be but subject. if that didn't work. Well, if, he, you know, there were well, there was resistance, of course. And so. Sure. There was resistance, and so there were wars, and there were, you know, um, the, the natives had no idea what the white uh, rules were. You know, they <laughs> didn't speak uh, Spanish or, or anything like that. And so they, they had lived in this new world peacefully or, or however they lived, you know, for thousands and thousands of years in a, a certain system where they, especially, especially in the uh, Caribbean island, where it seems like they shared everything. They didn't really have possessions. You know, they, they shared everything that was around. And so they kind of had that same uh, mentality when, the, when the, uh, the, the Europeans came over. And so they would see something they liked and they would grab it. And of course, there were thieves and thieves, you know, you cut off their hands and things like that, which was a, mis a misunderstanding between two cultures. And uh, also, you have to realize that Cristobal Colón was in the New World with 1,500 men against, you know, uh, probably 100,000, a couple of 100,000 natives. And so you could not let if you're going to enforce your authority, you cannot let things go unpunished. But the, the, the misconception that I want to get back to is that Cristobal Colón sailed to the New World in 1492. He returned to the Old World in 1493. He returned on his second voyage to the New World at the end of 1493. He established uh, the colony of Isabel, I think, at the beginning of 1494. And he only ruled the New World from 1494 until 1500. That's six years. Okay. In 1500, he was arrested and sent back in chains. And so he ruled the New World for six years. And out of those six years, from 1496 until 1498, he was back in Spain. So really, he only ruled the New World for four years. Cristóbal Colón was arrested and sent back to Spain. Yes, in 1500. Hold it right there because we have to separate both okay. segments. This is just, I'm here just scratching my head thinking, why is this information not 
in the public domain. And I want you to tell us what your speculation is as to why history is always written by the winners. Also, I want to ask you, when I keep asking you about Queen Isabel and if she knew, also the naturalization documents, they never explain, they never state where Cristóbal Colón or his brothers, their their place of birth, which is something that was required. You know, did Colón ever prove to have one single relative in Genoa who could prove his kinship. Let's talk about that too. So folks, okay, yeah. this is really interesting. How can people buy, I know that the book is not yet in the United States, but hopefully it will be soon. Maybe people are listening to this interview in the future and it will be available. How can people learn more about your work, uh, Mark well, Manuel? you know, the, the, the main um, way to do it is to go to my website, uh, www.1492.us.com. Simple to remember, 1492, the year the U.S., the Americas were discovered or, you know, made known to the, to the world. So 1492.us.com, there'll be a link to a blog there, and that's usually the best way to, to, to find what's going on. But, um, you know, most of the foreign editions are, are, have sold out, and so um, there's, there's probably 40 books left of the Polish edition, which I have. Uh, sometimes I do lectures for the Polish community, and, and you know that's one way to acquire them. The uh, Spanish edition is sold out. The Portuguese edition is sold out. Uh, Columbus, the untold story, desperately needs a, a U.S. publisher, someone with, with um, enough clout to put this in all the stores, because we have a story that is completely different from what we have been sold for, for a long time, and we have a story that is documented. Everything I am telling you, is documented. I can show you the document that it's in. I can show you the the um, you know the year it was written, who the source was, and uh, I can even point to things that that support the conspiracy against Spain. And then before we break, I'll tell you one little uh, one. You know, I told you that Portugal this this mission could not fail, and so everything was planned very carefully. So in the first voyage, it was a Portuguese spy on, on Captain Pizon's uh, on the Pinta. And this Portuguese uh, agent that was working with Cologne pulled out some cinnamon and handed it to Pinzon and said, hey, I got some, cin- we found cinnamon. There was a native here who had bundles of it. Well, that cinnamon was planted on the voyage to give the Spain the idea that they had reached the spices mm. because cinnamon never grew in the new world. Right. That's how carefully they planned this whole conspiracy against Spain to make them believe the new world was India. Very, very interesting dissertation here tonight with Manuel Rosa. Is the truth about Christopher Columbus a fraud against history? And if you have a problem trying to find a publisher in the United States, I'm very lucky to be in contact with many of them who will probably welcome your work. So I'm going to talk to you offline about that later. Folks, don't go anywhere. If you want to learn the truth about the discovery or rediscovery of the Americas by Cristóbal Colón or Christopher Columbus, as we call him, wrongly on this side of the world. Don't go anywhere. I'm Mel Fabregas with my special guest, Manuel Rosa, directly from North Carolina. This is Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.